Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 and go to verse 31. Matthew chapter 13. Blessed God, have mercy upon us and open to us these precious words of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth and spake in parables to a great multitude on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Bless us with the conviction and the conversion and the commitment to do our duty, to do our pleasure before thee better than we have before we heard this chapter. It's in Jesus' name that we ask you to help us and show us, lead us and guide us, receive us, and amen. amen. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. Parable number three. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. That's parable number three. It's the parable of the mustard seed. And so you can add that to your little handout that you have to help keep track of what we're learning in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is the New Testament reformation of religion by John, Jesus, and the apostles. Do not be misled by a grain of mustard seed and its other use in Matthew chapter 17, where it is a picture of small or modest faith that's able to move mountains. Here it is something else. A grain of mustard seed is indeed very small, and I have a little jar of them up here on the platform beside the pulpit for you to look at afterwards if you want to remind your children of how small of a seed it is. In the particular statement by our Lord in verse 32, he said, it is indeed the least of all seeds. So for his comparison here, it's the smallest, but it grows to the largest herb and can be called a tree. So the birds can come and nest in its branches or find shelter under its branches, as it is said in the other accounts of Mark and Luke. The sense is simple. How we prove it takes a little bit of effort and time, and I'm not going to go into every point, but hear me out on this. The sense is simple but we want to prove that it's the one and only interpretation. It is a positive lesson. So we start there. It's a positive lesson for the gospel to have the growth property of a mustard seed. So it's describing something very small that becomes something very big, and it's stated in a positive way, not a negative way. So we have a growth principle involved that's positive. The related parable of the leaven in meal, which comes next. So number four, let's go ahead and get it over with. The parable of leaven. It comes next, and it's one verse long. It's verse 33. But right now, we're on the mustard seed, and the two of them go together. They're very short parables, and they're both describing a growth principle. Because the mustard seed, though very small, turns into a tree, and leaven, though a small amount, is hid in a large lump of meal, it impacts the whole lump. So the whole thing rises. 
otherwise known as yeast. The birds must also be positive here, for there is no further details of ruin or trouble. So in the great size, it's able to accommodate and provide housing, shelter, and a place of refuge for these creatures that are birds. The key here is the exponential or geometric growth of the kingdom to benefit all. By comparing Scripture with Scripture, is there a significant event to fit this picture? We have a positive growth principle that's exponential and geometric from something very small to something very big, and then within it can be found shelter and a safe place of refuge for all fowls of the air. Is there some event in the Bible that lines up with this positive exponential growth principle of these two parables of the mustard seed and leaven? Is there? There is. Both Testaments teach the great mystery of the gospel would affect the whole world, and it would be very small in its beginnings. A recent study of Isaiah that we went through found explosive growth of the remnant Jewish church to be a very key point in the latter chapters of that prophecy. The lesson is this. Jesus' church began very small, but soon provided shelter worldwide. It grew very large. It was, it was not only small, it was despised. It was just looked at as so weak and so pitiful. What can this ever amount to? And when we see the 120 in Acts chapter 1, we think they weren't very big after Jesus' three and a half years of ministry. But then it turned the, it turned the world upside down in the opinion of our enemies. Is not this kingdom exactly, and this kingdom growth, exactly what Nebuchadnezzar saw in a vision, dream, and Daniel interpreted in Daniel chapter 2 that a stone would smite the image at its feet and then that stone would grow to fill the earth. And so we have a little mustard seed and it grows to be a big tree that all the fowls of the air can find refuge there. You know, the Lord calls us sparrows sometimes or compares us to sparrows. Sometimes we're compared to being taken and protected in the wilderness by an eagle. And, but this time... It's the birds and the fowls of the air find a place of refuge in the exploding kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it did grow very rapidly and very quickly, especially as the apostles and especially Paul went to the Gentiles. Birds from all parts of the world took shelter in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, including the Americas. And here we are. Listen, sometimes we want to be, sometimes we want to be worms. I want to be God's little worm from the book of Isaiah. I want to be a bird that finds shelter in the kingdom of Jesus Christ that was once so small it looked like a mustard seed, but it grew so great it became a great tree that all the fowls could go to. And if you remember Isaiah, we had this over and over, that we needed more material and longer cables and more stakes to be able to build the tent to house the, the explosive growth of the church throughout the world, and we're part of it. Brethren, we're part of a winning team. Amen. We're part of a dominating team. Amen. We've taken the world. You say, but it's not every person. It doesn't need to be. They can have what they want. Hell fire. But we are under the Lord Jesus Christ and can find safety in Him. And so when you look at verses 31 and 32, it is a parable about the exponential extreme growth of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like, and there's no negatives. It's all positive, 
It's huge growth. It matches perfectly to the leaven that follows. It affects everywhere it goes. It affects the whole lump, and it's affected the whole world. There are principles of Christianity that guide the whole world. Not all of them, and not love of Christ, but there are rules and kindness that the more a nation has of the kingdom of heaven, the more they have of Christ's rules. And it's a better place to live. Why is America a great place to live? Because it has more of Christ's kingdom preached here, and so the nation even has a residual benefit from that, and so many of our laws and rules and conduct, even in war. You know, our soldiers carry around chocolate bars to hand out. When you, when you watch our soldiers in action, it's very different from other nations. And where does that come from? It comes from a compassionate, love your neighbor, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, rules that come from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so everything is positive in verses 31, 32, and 33. There's no negatives. There's nothing explained about the birds being killed, and the birds need to be taken out by a fowler. They are finding rest like they should find rest in this huge tree, and it's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So... What's lesson number three? And if you ask, you don't have lesson number two. You shouldn't. But this is lesson number three. Because it's parables three and four. It's growth of kingdom. It's the growth of Jesus Christ's kingdom. It's the growth of the kingdom of heaven. So you may put there growth of kingdom. Lesson number three from the eight parables. Now I read you verse 33. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. A lump of dough from three measures of meal is a large lump of dough. And she took an amount of yeast and hid it because it was so small you couldn't find it. She just plugged it in there plugged it into the mix, and left it. But yeast and leaven, the way that it works, infected, affected the whole lump. And so there's an effect of Christianity worldwide. We have brothers on the other side of the planet. We had families that engaged by live stream with the wedding we had on Wednesday evening, 12 hours ahead of us. We had the wedding at 7 p.m. on Friday evening, they were watching the wedding at 7 a.m. on Saturday morning around the world because it affected the whole lump. And you don't want to take it too far. It doesn't convert everyone, but there is a place, and there is teaching, and there is preaching of the gospel. There's underground churches, and there are accepted and, and registered churches that preach the truth of the gospel in every nation of the world. And we thank the Lord for that. And so Jesus is throwing out a variety of lessons in Matthew chapter 13, and 3 and 4 go together. You can tell that, that uh, the two verses of 31 and 32, and then verse 33, are comparing something that affects a much larger thing than itself. And so the kingdom of God began very small and didn't have much influence. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the Levites, the priests, the Herodians were all against this little kingdom, but that little kingdom took them out of the way and grew and affected everything. 
Christianity is far greater today than Judaism. Far greater. But if you looked at it in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, while he was still alive, it looked like the Jews were much more powerful and influential than his small kingdom. But that changed because it was like yeast put into a lump of dough or mixed in the batch for a lump of dough and it affected the whole thing. The growth of the kingdom is lesson number three. So let's go to verses 34 and 35. What's reason number one for Jesus using parables? Conceal and reveal. Well, here's another one in these two verses. I read verses 34 and 35 to you. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables. And without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Amen. So we've had a fulfillment of one prophecy, Isaiah chapter 6. Remember, it was over here in verses 14 and 15, fulfilled Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 13. Now, Jesus is using parables to fulfill prophecy. Reason number two, fulfill prophecy. You say, really? Yes, because that's what the verses right here say. Do you know that if you are examining the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, what is one characteristic of his preaching and teaching? He used parables. So when you go back into Psalm 78 in verses, verse 2, you find out a prophecy there that wasn't so much of the psalmist, because when you read the rest of Psalm 78, guess what it is? History. It's a historical account of the, the Jews' history. And so it's a prophecy. It's pointing forward to Christ. Matthew, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us Jesus spoke in parables to fulfill Psalm 78, verse 2. And when you read the psalmist in Psalm 78, there wasn't a whole lot of secret information that had been kept secret from the foundation of the world. But when Jesus taught, he taught things that were obscure from the foundation of the world. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 15, Colossians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 3, that the things he taught from Jesus had been kept secret from the foundation of the world. That God was going to expand his kingdom through his son and bring in Gentiles. And so here Jesus is saying, one of the reasons I speak in parables, and, and Matthew, is, Matthew is explaining it to us in these two verses, that to fulfill Psalm 78 and verse 2. And more could be said about that. There are so many things that we know that have been either unknown or only partially known from the very beginning. Once in a while, the Lord would show mercy on a man. Abraham, Jesus said of Abraham, he rejoiced to see my day. So Abraham had a glimpse of the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Job would say, probably before Abraham, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that in the latter day he'll stand on the earth, and he's going to deliver my body from corruption, even though after my skin worms destroy this thing in my flesh, 
my eyes will work again and I'll see him. Now Job knew that, but not very many others knew that. And so we find in Psalm 49 that David's addressing men who don't understand deliverance from death. They don't even understand death properly. And yet David comes along and says, I will be delivered from the power of the grave, unlike them. And so all these things are moving forward. The salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, what would you have done with Genesis 3.15 from Genesis 4 on? until you get to the New Testament, or until you get to Isaiah, or Psalms. You didn't really know what was understood by the seed of the woman coming, and the seed of the woman having a heel wound, but dealing a fatal head wound to an enemy, and the enemy being Satan. You wouldn't have seen it clearly, but it just kept adding to it and adding to it, and so Jesus Christ, through John the, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ and his apostles, gave us the complete revelation of truth. So we have the complete 27 books of the New Testament, and they tell us everything we know, things that have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. In what first verse did you know that you were chosen in Christ Jesus for eternal life from the foundation of the world? Since it happened way back then, when did he first let that out? When did you know when the kingdom was prepared for you? When did you know that your name was in the book of life? All these things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Right. Did you know about the day of judgment in Genesis chapter 3? Nope. It mentioned death, and we know now, looking backward, that there are three deaths, and one's that final death. But that's because we're looking back. We're, we're cheating. Our cheat sheet is the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Oh, let the Lord be magnified. Amen. What a cheat sheet to have the New Testament to understand the old. But that the Lord Jesus is about to reveal reapers coming. Now you say, well, that was popped out pretty early. Yes, it was. But Jude didn't write it until 4,000 years after it popped out early. It came out of the mouth of Enoch, who was the seventh from Adam, but it wasn't written down until Jude, the second to last book of the Bible. Are you with me? That great day of judgment that's coming. Solomon had a glimpse of it because Solomon said... After he said, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That's all he said. There weren't any angels in flaming fire coming, but Enoch threw, a, threw that out by saying ten thousands of his saints are coming to convince all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds. So I'm just explaining to you that there have been things kept hidden that the Apostle Paul said he was an expert in, in Ephesians chapter 3, especially, that he revealed. And so we have a fulfillment. Why did Jesus speak in parables? All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them. That is this multitude. Jesus often spake without parables to other audiences. The Sermon on the Mount is not parables. The Sermon on the Mount is, It hath been said, but I say unto you, it hath been said, but I say unto you, that is didactic, logical, very good instruction of a doctrinal sort and not a parable. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. It takes a creative gift to be able to speak in parables. 
to construct a parable that conveys a lesson is a creative, linguistic, intellectual gift. Jesus had it. Those Jews are guilty. See, when you think of the Jews being guilty, you think of they rejected John, they rejected Jesus' doctrine and his perfect life, and they rejected all the gifts of the Holy Ghost of Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. But I want to add one thing to it. They rejected the fact that a man came along who used parables a great deal in his ministry and fulfilled a prophecy of Psalm 78 and verse 2. So Jesus is throwing in a two-verse proof. I am the Messiah. It was prophesied of me that I would disclose things through parables that weren't generally known by men. I am the one. But Matthew's explaining that to us, and it's part of Matthew 13. I wish that you could all remember well, John chapters 18 and 19, when we looked at Jesus' final moments on the cross, I wish that you could remember well that there were certain things that had to be fulfilled in just a certain way. I wish that you could remember that when he said it is finished, he wasn't talking about the work of redemption. I know that it's used that way all the time, but that's not what he was referring to. He was referring to the last prophecy that had to be fulfilled. I thirst. And as soon as he said that, it is finished. He could lay down his life. He could say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Second reason to fulfill prophecy. Reason number two for the three reasons that Jesus used parables was to fulfill prophecy. And Matthew explains that to us, that with this particular audience, he used only parables. And he didn't use anything else with them. In verses 34 and 35, now we get to tares explained. Now, I told you before our break that the Lord Jesus gave a long parable of the tares, but his explanation is quite short, and he leaves out some of the details because we should have figured them out already. Now, he didn't even give us an explanation for the mustard seed, did he? We just got to think it's positive. It's exponential growth. It provides for all the fowls of the air It affects the whole lump, and it's positive. You just keep saying these things. Is there some other event in the Bible, when I compare Scripture with Scripture, is there some other event of something being very small, becoming very big, very fast, growing up and just exploding, exploding? Did I use that word in Isaiah? Exploding in growth. And so we we have the fulfillment. We have the interpretation. Even though Jesus didn't give it to us, it's not difficult at all. And we look, in the, we look in the Acts of the Apostles, they have 120 in chapter 1. And how many do they have at the end of chapter 2? 3,120. And how many do they have at the end of chapter 3? 5,000 more. You say, Pastor, was it the same day? Yes, it was the afternoon. They had a good morning. Why not have a good afternoon? Go read it carefully. Acts 2 and Acts 3. Huge. Boom! Yes! That's our Lord. Verse 36, the explanation for the parable of the tares. Beginning at verse 36 of Matthew 13. Then Jesus sent the multitude away. Do you know that he hasn't sent you away? 
you would be in a Roman Catholic church this morning and you'd be taking part of the Mass and you wouldn't know anything except what you learned in Catholic school because he sent them away with strong delusion to believe a lie. Jesus sent the multitude. Remember those multitudes had come together for a big multitude? He sent them away. And then he's going to explain some things to his chosen few. Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. So it's a crowd small enough to get into a house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, and this is concise, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seed of the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. This is one sober parable interpretation right here in these verses. This is what's coming, and this is what was meant by the parable of the tares. And brethren, let me say to you again, when we go out of this place, there is nothing out there to remind us of this horrific event coming. And yet it is coming, and we are, of course, very simply stated, closer to it than any generation before us. Paul would say in his time, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. He was looking at the course of his own life that he knew he was getting closer to this coming time. And the things we understand of timed prophecies in the Bible, this is not far away because the timed prophecies in the Bible have been fulfilled. The 1260 years is long fulfilled of Daniel chapter 7 and other places in Daniel. And so let's look at this interpretation briefly of the parable of the tares. And he's presenting this to his disciples who get him in the house. And it could have been Simon and Andrew's house where he explains this to them. The Son of Man has a kingdom. Now when you look at sowing seed, the devil didn't take a pure population of children of God and sow reprobates in it. That's taking the parable too far of sowing seed. There's a relationship here of ownership, leadership, and influence in those that are the children of God and in those that are children of the devil. So when you look at it, some of the terms of the parable, you want to be careful that you don't take them too far. Like I said earlier today, the two pence and the inn and the innkeeper and the oil and the wine that was poured in, all those things are quite irrelevant to the lesson, though they help to show the compassion of the good Samaritan. But the lesson is, who is my neighbor? And here the lesson is, judgment day is coming, and Jesus, the Son of Man, by his angels, will 
perfect his kingdom by getting out of it any tares that have crept into it. And when it says it's the world, it's the kingdom of Christ in the world. And the devil, the devil's always had his kingdom. And the devil has his kingdom. But remember, these tares and wheat are growing up side by side. And the Lord has told them, the servants, which are not even mentioned here, leave it alone. Let them grow to maturity. And the day of harvest, I'll send angels that will get the tares out of the way. And those that are left will be brought into my barn. And brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, you will shine as the sun in the kingdom of your father. The son of righteousness will be our savior and you will be so changed in body, soul, and spirit. Jesus could say that you will shine as the sun in the kingdom of their father. You know, I'm, I'm struggling right now to convey to you and to remind you that if you take a parable and get hung up on all of its verbs and all of its nouns, you're going to miss the lesson. The lesson is that in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, there is good seed that are children of the Son of children of God. And there are reprobates that get into the churches of Jesus Christ and into his outward kingdom that are children of the devil. Jesus just presented it as I had a kingdom and I sowed it with good seed, the children of God. The devil came along and wanting to corrupt my kingdom. He sent Judas Iscariots into it. Did Jesus know that Judas Iscariot was a devil all along? Yes, he did. And he said he had a devil. Right. Jesus knew that. The rest of the apostles didn't have a clue. They thought they, there was more likelihood that they were the ones that were going to betray Jesus than Judas would betray Jesus. And so you've got to look at the big picture, like the big picture of the prodigal son, the big picture of the sower. Oh, there's four responses to the gospel. Oh, there's elect and reprobates in the kingdom of Je the outward, visible, professing kingdom of Jesus Christ, who's going to take care of it and when? The Lord Jesus Christ is going to take care of it with his holy angels in the great day of judgment at the end of the world. All very simple. A, a warning about an event that's coming that no one wants to talk about. An event kept secret from the foundation of the world except for little tiny glimpses of it along the path of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12, 14 and others reaching to the Lord Jesus who spent a great deal of time talking about hell, fire and judgment to come. The Jesus that most Christians know very little about. And so he is so concise in verses 37 through 39. He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. Remember, it's a parable about sowing. The fields of the world, the good seed of the children of the kingdom, the tares of the children of the wicked one, the enemy that sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the world, the reapers are the angels, the tares are going to be gathered and burned, and so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man is going to send forth his angels, and they'll gather out of his kingdom. So no, if we read ahead, then come back, read ahead, then come back, we're talking about Jesus Christ's kingdom and reprobates getting into it. Brought in there, like Judas Iscariot, by the devil. Matthew 22. Did you read it last evening when I asked you to read it? I gave you Matthew 22. I limited it to just 14 verses so that you would find God inspecting his churches and finding a man in there without a wedding garment on. Do you remember? Friend, what are you here without a wedding, gar wedding garment? 
And the man was speechless. And he said, get him out of here. That's what's coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in 2 Thessalonians 1. Did I ask? That was extra reading material. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels to wreak vengeance on all the tares, them that, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he comes to get the tares first with his reaping angels. And it goes on for three verses, seven, eight, nine. And then in verse 10, it says, in that day we'll admire him because we believed the gospel when it was presented to us. Right. They're condemned for not believing it. We're blessed for believing it as the evidence of our election. So 2 Thessalonians teaches the same thing. Matthew 22 teaches the same thing. And right here, don't be thinking about sowing so much because when Jesus sowed, he had a kingdom and it was given to him. And the kingdom that was given to him was all of the elect. And that's his kingdom. But the devil did work some tares, some reprobates into that kingdom. And so the Son of Man is going to send forth his angels. Enoch knew about it. Jude wrote what Enoch said about it in Jude. And they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity. God inspects the wedding party in Matthew 22. What does he do? Does he walk up to everyone that should be there and say, I'm glad you're here? No. He gets the pretenders out. So he gets the man without a wedding garment out. They get the tares out first. Jesus and his angels come to get the unbelievers out first and to judge them. The reason, the reason this little angle and this little point that I'm making right now is a great deal of pleasure to me is it's the opposite of the rapture. Right. He's coming to get the wicked first. You say, is, is that really true? Turn over to Matthew 24 and let me show you. Turn over to Matthew 24 and let me show you how things can become so easily misunderstood with false teachers. Verse 37 of Matthew 24. This is a little rabbit. Let's get it quickly. As the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. That's the rapture. Who is taken away? The wicked, not Noah. The wicked. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken. Is that going up in heaven in the rapture? No. That's one being taken by the Roman armies and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken by the Roman armies and the other left. So I just wanted to show you that because when Jesus explains the parable of the tares, the angels, the reapers come and first bind up the tares and throw them in a furnace of fire, leaving the righteous. The exact opposite of what false teachers teach about the order of events in their so-called rapture. Enjoy it. That was free. We just had rabbit stew. By the grace of God. Thank you, Lord, for the things you've shown us. Thank you, Lord, for the order of this. These are two kingdoms in the world, but one kingdom has sown some of its members in the kingdom of Jesus Christ so that there are reprobates in churches. And that's why Matthew 22 had one. That's why 2 Thessalonians goes after those that do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's why there was Judas Iscariot among just 12 apostles. One of them was a devil. And so that is parable number two. And we don't have much more to say about it yet. The lesson of parable number two is going to be the same as parable number seven because of time. Let's just go ahead and get this over with. Judgment day comes. Five lessons by the eight parables. Lesson number two, which is from parables number two and seven, judgment day comes. And that is what the lesson of verses 36 through 43 is all about. Judgment day is coming, but look where we end up. We end up in a kingdom called the kingdom of our Father, the kingdom of God. All the wicked and everything that offends is ripped out of it. How would you like American, America to do that? All the leaders of America get, ready, get rid of everything that offends, everything that is wrong, every bit of injustice, and throw them out and just leave the nation to the righteous. What a place. Well, it'll never happen, and we'll never even get close to it. But it will happen in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we're told about it right here. Now remember those ministers and those servants. Those servants were the first to see because they're watching closely. They baptize men. They see men join the church. They watch their lives and they're hoping for fruit and they're hoping for discipleship. And all of a sudden they see someone with no fruit, no love of Christ, no longer talks about the things of God, living for themselves, carnally minded, thinking of earthly things. Lord, when I baptized them, they said they loved thee. They said they loved your son. They committed to a church covenant that they would obey. Lord, we've got tares. Don't you just give us good seed? And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. An enemy has sown them. Well, then let me go rip them out. I would love to rip them out for you, Lord. I would love to be your Jehu. I would love to be your Peter and pull a sword in Gethsemane. I would love to take a hoe and rip them out. Just hold on. Hold on, Peter, and put your sword back up. You might mistake one of those weak wheat plants for a tear and rip them both up. With your hoe, the way that you do things, you might rip up a tear and pull up the roots of some wheat that are beside it. So back off. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Back off and wait until harvest. And I've got another crew that we're going to hire that are going to come in and they're going to look at the mature plants and they will not make any mistakes. Servant, why do you have this fruitless fig tree in my vineyard? It's cumbering the ground and it's ugly. Lord, give me another year to dig it and dung around it and then you come and cut it down. I hope you see the consistency in the parables and how this church is directed. Are there tares in our church? Why not? Certainly. There are tares. There are wayside hearers. There are stony ground hearers. There are thorny ground hearers. There's good ground hearers of 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. That gives us seven options for every one of you. It's not hard. Take a spreadsheet and make seven columns. And you have a hundredfold 
fruit-bearing Christian at the right, and you have a tear, reprobate, son of Belial on the left. And then mark them out in between. This is a lesson that has been on slides for the men at their men's meetings the last two meetings, but I haven't been able to get to it. But I'm getting to it right now. And so what effect should that have on us? Should it really be to go home and create a spreadsheet? Well, I hope that some of you already do that in your head a little bit, since you're able to tell who's fruit-bearing in the church and who isn't. But that isn't the point. The point that we want to do is, first of all, I do not want to be a tear. And the Bible tells me certain things that I can do to make my calling and election sure. And I'm going to give diligence to them, just like Peter said I ought to give diligence to that subject. And I want to do those things that I can lay up a good foundation against the time to come that Paul warned me about in 1 Timothy chapter. I'm going to do those things that I can get out of that, that left category. I do not like the category of tares. And so once I'm out of that category, then, then I can be a wayside hearer. Oh, I don't want to be a wayside hearer. I'm going to start preparing better on Saturday evenings. I'm going to pray for the services. I'm going to review the sermons that I hear. I'm going to listen more intently. I'm going to drink coffee or monsters before I come. I'm going to do everything I can naturally and spiritually to be as attentive as I possibly can. And I'm going to stand there with my toes curled in the sand of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And I want to hear everything I can hear to please my God and Savior better. I'm not going to be a wayside hearer. And my job, I'm going to use it and I'm going to rule it because it's to serve me, not me to serve it. I'm not going to be a thorny ground here. And I don't care what they take from me. I don't care what I lose in following the Lord Jesus Christ because I'm going to keep him first and I'm not going to be a stony ground here that melts away and gets scorched because a few bad or tough things happen to me for following Jesus Christ. So I'm going to get over to the good ground. Are you with me? We've just blown out four to the left. We've got three left. 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And I'm going to tell the Lord, Lord, I'm the least and the worst that you've ever put in the ministry, and I'm just a little child, and I don't know how to go out or to come in, but what I've got is yours, and, and you may abuse me and use me any way you want to because I want to get to a 100-fold yield for you if you'll be merciful, and then let's strive to do that. He tells us how to do it. He tells us how to do it at home. He tells us how to do it with our spouses. He tells us how to do it with our children. He tells us how to do it with our money. He tells us how to do it with our time. He tells us how to do it with our bosses at work, colleagues at work, neighbors, government, rulers, everything. We just do it. And so we move over there. What do I want for this church? I want for this church when the reapers come, they cry out to the Lord, we have nothing to do here. There are no tares. Well, what about wayside, stony ground, and thorny ground hearers? We don't see any of them either. Well, what about some cheap, inferior ground with 30-fold returns? We don't see much of that either, Lord. We just see a whole bunch of 100-fold. We have found some 12-foot corn stalks that grow in Iowa that South Carolina has never seen. But they're in South Carolina now, and they're in the Church of Greenville. 100-fold. They even grow bigger. Field corn in Iowa is dangerous. Small children could climb them. They can hit 14 feet. That would be a corn maze, wouldn't it? Block the sun out. You could do it in the middle of the day instead of at night with flashlights. You say, why did I get off on that point? Because I'm trying to relieve the tension a little bit. 
seven, hundredfold, tear. Come in, wayside, stony ground, thorny ground, 30. I know it's all backwards. I'm too simple. Let's see if I can do it. Mm. Tear. Wayside here, stony ground here, thorny ground here, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Why do I push so hard as your pastor? I want you all right there. So that the day of your death or the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no doubt in your mind you're confident because you're over here at least in the 30, 60, and 100-fold area. You're not one of these hearers where everything's in doubt. We don't know if they're a tear or not because it looks like a tear. And we certainly don't want to be over there. When I say, why not have tears in our church? They're in every church. That's just a, that's just a warning of the Bible. Right. I don't want any in this church. Let's go to verse 44. It's a short one and an easy one. Oh, 44 and 45 and 46. Lift your heads up, please, and don't look at your Bible so I can get your attention for just two sentences. If you're worried about that parable of the, terrible, of the tares and its explanation, do you want to prove that you're not a tear? It's in the next two parables. And it's only three verses, and it's very simple. And I've already said it about me, and I want to say it about each and all of you. I will give up everything for Christ right. and his kingdom. That's how you can prove it that you're not a tear, and you're not a wayside here or a stony ground here or a thorny ground here. Remember, a thorny ground here gets choked out by riches. Are you willing to throw everything away for the cause of Jesus Christ? Here we go. Verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hidden a field. There's 12 kingdom comparisons. The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hidden a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Listen, feel the excitement of that man. He finds a field owned by someone else that has a hid treasure in it. He, he saunters out of the field. He hides the fact that he's just found a hid treasure in another man's field. So he hides it by sauntering out. As soon as he's out of sight, he sprints for home, puts everything on Craigslist, dumps it all, and goes back and pays twice the asking price for the property in order to get his hands on that hid treasure. You say, your word pictures are ridiculous. Well, I'm sorry. I, I said I'm the least and the worst he's ever used in the ministry. But that word picture is what I want you... That's what the word picture is here. So that he can get his hands on the hid treasure and the kingdom of heaven is like that where Jesus Christ is preached, and there are others that believe in that preached Jesus Christ, and they love Him, and they love each other. The church that the Lord's given us, are you willing to sell all and lose all for it? Thank you. A few of you at least. This is how you can prove you don't belong back there in the tear parable, and the tear explanation, showing your zeal for Christ. That's why I want to hear from your mouth. I want to hear things about Jesus Christ. I want to hear about your love of Him, your love of heaven, your thoughts about heaven, your love of justification and being delivered from your sins, your love of the brethren, your love of the church. You want to help them, mentor them, feed them, nourish them, lift them, help provoke them to love and to good works. That's a man who's willing to give up everything. His spare time, 
He puts his job in its proper place and locks it in there behind lock and key. Let's get, let's get another story here from the Lord, another parable. 45 and 46, again. Look at verse 44, again. Look at verse 45, again. Look at verse 47, again. Jesus is trying to help us, again. The kingdom, in verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Here's a pearl merchant who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So he's, he's sailing around from port to port looking for pearls, and he finds one fantastic, yeah, let's make it this big, a pearl this big, and it's absolutely beautiful. He turns his ship around and goes straight home. Everything I've been working for for the last 20 years, I, I sell it right now at fire sales. Fire sale prices, because I need to get whatever I can get out of it and get rid of it. And then he pockets that money, sails back to that port where that big Chicago softball pearl was waiting for him, and he bought it. What's it like? That is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. Is the kingdom of heaven that important to you? Is this church that important to you? This is where Jesus Christ is worshipped. The Bible, for some reason, calls a church the temple of God. For some reason, it calls this church the house of God. For some reason, the Bible calls this church the body of Jesus Christ. For some reason, the Bible calls this church the bride of Jesus Christ. Show us your love. Show him your love for him and his, for him and his temple, for him and his people. Because when it says the kingdom of heaven is like unto... It is talking about the New Testament era of the gospel of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, and the apostles that had local churches combining together to make the kingdom of God along with believers. And they're part of the whole family of God, some of which are already in heaven, the spirits of just men made perfect, and some that are on earth. So if you don't want to be in the parable and the explanation of the tares, then jump in to a hid treasure and a pearl that big. Okay, so what is parable number five? The treasure. It could be the hid treasure or the treasure. Parable number five is the treasure. Parable number six is the pearl of great price, or the pearl. If you want just one word, it's pearl. If you want more words, Jesus' words, it's pearl of great price. Well, now we have another parable. We've got another again in verse 47. Again, I want you to understand that the zeal that he described in verses 44 through 46 that zeal that he described is sandwiched by an explanation and a parable of the great day of judgment. If you can lose relationships, if you can lose jobs, if you can lose money, if you can lose time, if you can lose emotional effort because you're investing it in Jesus Christ and his people, you're on safe ground. Right. Tears never do it. If tears do it for five minutes, you can figure them out in the sixth minute. Wayside hearers don't do it. Stony ground hearers don't do it. They may last for two hours or two days, but you figure them out the third hour or the third day. And it's to show your zeal for Christ and his kingdom, his gospel, his preaching, and his people and his churches. But here we go, verse 47. Is it going to be back again about the judgment day that's coming? Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. 
which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Here's another brief picture of the great day of judgment that's coming. Instead of this time, wheat growing up and tares beside it, and the angels as reapers having to come and figure out these are tares, binding them and throwing them into the furnace of fire and leaving the righteous to stand forth and to shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, this is a dragnet. Your boats take the net out a little ways from the shore, drop the thing down, pull it all the way in. The ships pull it in. You can read about Peter, James, John, Andrew, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew doing this and dragging it up on shore. And then you look at the fish. Oh, I want that thing. And you throw it away and you put the good into vessels. That's your, that's your coolers. That's your coolers and you take home the good fish because that's how they fish. And so Jesus used that example of fishing to describe the kingdom of heaven is like that, that there's a lot of good fish in it that will be put into the vessels that are for my eternal inheritance with them, and there are bad that will be pulled out and thrown away. And the angels are going to come and do it. It says the angels, in the middle of verse 49, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. That is another description of hell. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The distress and the pain, the fear and the anguish and the anger all combined together will be terrible on the part of the wicked in the lake of fire. Into outer darkness, wailing and gnashing of teeth. Intense distress caused by a God that they ignored during their lives. That was parable number seven. It's the parable of the net. So when we look at lesson number two, there were five lessons by these eight parables. Lesson number two, judgment day comes. Judgment day comes for lesson number two. Lesson number three was growth of the kingdom. Lesson number four, value of the kingdom. Value of the kingdom. That hidden treasure in a field, he sold all to get it. That pearl of great price, he, was, he sold all to get it. Are you willing to sell out everything for Jesus Christ? Now we come to verses 51 and 52 in parable number 8. Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? They say unto him, Yea, Lord. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. This is number eight. This is the parable of the householder, as Jesus describes it here in verse 52. What is the lesson of parable number eight? It's lesson number five. It is ministerial variety of content. You can just call it pastor's variety. Pastor's content. Jesus Christ gave them all these parables of Matthew 13, and at the end, he asks his disciples, Have ye understood all these things? They say unto him, Yea, Lord. Then he said, said he unto them, Therefore, every scribe, every man that deals in the word of God, everyone like you that has received as many different lessons as I've given you in this session with you, 
he is going to use that content that I've given him to bring forth things new and old, depending on the situation, to keep the growth going in the people that he's responsible for, that he's preaching to. I've done it to you. I've explained some of the harder ones to you to get you started. You have said you understood it all. Now that you understand it, I've given you a library of content. Go and preach things old and new. Sometimes we get new things out of this pulpit, and sometimes it's the old, old story. But both are appropriate in their proper place, and we need both. And so that is parable number eight. It's the parable of the householder. It is lesson number five. It's ministerial content or pastoral variety. And reason number three for using parables is to train his ministers. Train ministers is what Matthew 13 was for. Children, young disciples, did you understand everything I taught you? Yea, Lord, then go teach it. Go use it. And now a terrible result to avoid. And I close out this chapter by reading verses 53 through 58. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. He's at Capernaum, sea coast of Galilee, and he's going home to Nazareth, about 12 miles away, where he was raised. He spent the first 30 years of his life, other than some time in Egypt, in Nazareth. And when he was coming to his own country, this is verse 54, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. His hometown of Nazareth. It is why he was called Jesus of Nazareth. This is Nazareth. His siblings are still there. He's been traveling preaching. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And a longer account of this or a very related event is Luke chapter 4 when he stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth and read out of Isaiah 61 and said this day are these words fulfilled in your midst and they tried to kill him. Looking at the bottom of your little handout for those of you that find this helpful, the Bible proverb, a prophet is not without honor. It's a proverb. A proverb is a short metaphorical, obscure, pithy saying, and a parable is an extended proverb, or vice versa. And the words, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house, is a proverb. Do you know how we say it? It's what our proverb has there, that line for. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. They had watched Jesus grow up for 30 years. They knew his brothers. They knew his sisters. They knew his father was just a carpenter. They knew his mother, Mary. All those names are stated here. They knew that he was just from Nazareth. They knew there was nothing impressive about his family. There was nothing about his, impressive about his younger life. Uh, they should have looked a little closer. And so they, did, they were offended. That first sentence of verse 57 should terrify us. 
Let's never be offended by the Lord Jesus Christ or anything about him in the Bible. Right. Have any of you ever sat in public at a restaurant or a cafeteria of a workplace and been afraid to offer up thanks for your food? Why were you offended? I wish I could go back to my banking days. I'd get a whole lot more mileage out of all the meals that I had to eat with officers of that bank. I'm saying that to my shame. And they were offended at him because they thought they knew him, but they didn't know him. Let's not get offended with each other in here. God has chosen the base, the foolish, the weak, the poor, rich in faith. And at times they're going to irritate us, disappoint us, frustrate us, but let's not be offended. If they love the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't care how base, or fool, base foolish, poor, weak in the opinion of the world. That's what is meant in 1 Corinthians 1. We don't care what the world thinks of them. They are our brother and sister in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they love him, and they're striving for heaven, and we're going to do it with them, and we're going to live and die together in the Lord, and we're going to provoke each other to love and to good works. They were offended in Jesus, but to believers, Jesus is precious. precious. Yes, brother. First Peter chapter 2. We will love him and his offensive elect. We will love him and his offensive children because they're his. And if we love God, we will love those that are begotten of him. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.